0: Matthew 10, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 2 as we continue in our study on the 12 disciples we've been examining their lives. The Bible tells us here in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1, and when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Father, thank you for your word. As we study it today, may you reveal your truth to us in such a powerful way, Lord. We want to be faithful. We want our lives to matter. We want to be in your will to be used by God. And I pray today also, if anyone doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they come to know You. In Jesus' name we prayed, and all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated this morning. So as we continue in our study on the lives of these 12 men, out of all the billions of people that God could have called, uh, that have lived throughout the centuries, He called these 12 specific men to be his disciples, who he would also send as apostles. And he would call them to do the greatest of all works, which was to launch the church and to bring the gospel to a world that's dying in need of salvation. And Paul refers to these twelve men as the foundation stones of the church, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, according to Ephesians chapter 3. Week one, we looked at Peter, who was the leader of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, We saw that he was an unstable man who often spoke before he thought. He displayed great potential, uh, but there was a lot of refining that God had to do. But we saw how over those three years of ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, molded the clay called Simon into the rock that became Peter. Last week we saw Andrew, Peter's younger brother, who stood in the shadow of his older brother, Um, He was most often referred to as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, yet he didn't mind that. He was humble, faithful, he had a huge heart for people, and he became known as the one who brought people to Jesus. If you wanted to come to Jesus, just get to Andrew because he's the guy that would bring you there. He even brought his brother Peter to Jesus, and what a great example we learned from Andrew's life that we all should follow. This morning, I want to look at another set of brothers, James and John. Two men who God used in a dynamic way, so much we can learn from their lives. So I want to look at James and John, who the Bible refers to as the sons of thunder. And so let's look at some background information about them first. James and John were brothers. I think it's of note, and something to ponder, that Jesus called two sets of brothers as the first four men to be his apostles. Peter and Andrew were brothers, and then James and John. Nineteen years ago, my brother and I moved to Chillicothe, Ohio, where we started a church with eight people. And uh, he's my older brother, and and we started in a hotel conference room, a Christopher N Conference Room, and um, there were we we met there for a couple months, and we they would set about fifty chairs up in the mornings, and the hotel manager had two sons that would set those chairs up for us, and. And we never met these young men, but they would come in and faithfully set the room up and uh, we'd come in and preach. And it was about three years later that uh, one of those young men came to my youth ministry at the time and his name was Nathan and he ended up getting saved. And, uh, and, and he told me he had a brother who was an atheist. He said, don't go visit him because he will totally reject everything you have to say. And so I went to see him that week and, uh, and, and knocked on his door. You know, what's interesting is um, I, I should have put the picture up. Um, but Eric sent me a text, his brother's name was Eric, but uh, I remember going to visit him, I went to see him about uh, 15 times over a year and a half, and and he finally got saved. And, and uh, he sent me a text uh, just last month, he said 16 years ago, um, uh, I got saved on this day in, in June, and, and, and he still has the track that I left on his door, and I said, Eric, I uh, just want to come by and see you. I always enjoy talking to you. And, um, and, and even as a lost kid who was an atheist, totally rejected God, for, for, a, for a grown man to come and show attention, to show concern, made such an impact on him, he never got rid of that card. Just a, just a simple note, I just thought that was Interesting. You know, there's people in the world that may reject God, but they can't reject somebody who really cares about them. And even when they say no, uh, God still works. And so, uh, but what's interesting is, is his name was Eric, and he came here to help me start Lighthouse uh, 13 years ago with eight people, and, and the church has grown up from there. Uh, but those two brothers are now preachers today. Nathan's a pastor of a church plant over in uh, Circleville, Ohio. One of the most dynamic, powerful preachers you would hear in Erickson, uh, uh, Honduras, uh, preaching the gospel this morning, amen? And uh, he just had his one-year anniversary of the church plant he did over in Honduras. And what's interesting is this. I remember telling him, I said, you believe in God? He said, I don't believe in any, anything. That's just ridiculous. And I said, if, if God were real, would you want to know? He said, well, Absolutely. I said, then why don't you ask him to show himself to you? I said, and why don't you take the gospel of John and say, God, if you're real, I want to know the truth. And I said, stop standing at a distance and some foolish rebuking of things you don't even have an idea about. Why don't you just ask God to show himself to you? I said, if he will, I said, he'll absolutely change the rest of your life. But if he's not real, he can do nothing to you. And so he did. And uh, God got a hold of his life, and today he's a missionary. Amen. And, uh, but I just thought that's interesting that when you look in the Bible, you see God using brothers. And I've seen that even work itself out and flesh itself out in our lives. It's interesting that God used family members to work together in the ministry. And so that happens sometimes where family members work together in the ministry. And that happened in the earth. Even John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Is that interesting? And so secondly, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Their father's name was Zebedee. Uh, He had a fishing business uh, that the brothers worked in. You need to understand that fishing uh, for a living is not an easy job, especially in that day. Uh, They fished all night long on small vessels. Uh, They would take uh, sea nets, uh, S E-I-N nets, and they would spread those very large nets, spread them across the Sea of Galilee, pull those in. They fished at night most often. I mean, this is, this is hard work. This is physical labor. Uh, this is difficult. Um, and, and it was just uh, the lifestyle they had. Their dad must have had a successful business because according to Mark 1 20, uh that he also had hired servants. So this was a, this was a pretty, pretty good operation that he had going on. And I'm sure James and John were uh, really leading that charge for their dad. Uh, And so fishing uh, reveals that these men were hard workers. People didn't stay in that line of business if they were not. Thirdly, James and John were raised in a spiritual home. Uh, You know, when Jesus came along, he called Peter and Andrew to follow him. Peter and Andrew were also fishermen. Uh, Jesus calls both sets of brothers out of a fishing business. And then he calls James and John. And what's interesting is James and John immediately drop their nets and it says, and they left their nets and their father and followed Jesus. Uh, I find it uh, somewhat interesting that their father did not s- try to stop them. He didn't say, "Hey, that's a bad idea, guys. You need to stay here. I want this is a family business. You know, I need I need to have some retirement down the road too. You know, you guys will be passing on to me." But he doesn't do that. He 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 seemingly uh, lets them go without any type of fuss. Uh, but also, their mother uh, is named Salome, uh, as it's pronounced. Was very involved uh, in the ministry of Christ. Um, she was a very faithful follower of Christ. In fact, um, we'll, we'll see in just a moment, but she, uh, she, she, was, she was around the ministry of Christ throughout different things that went on. In Matthew 20, uh, she came to Jesus with a big request for her boys. Only a mother could do this. You know, Matthew 20, verse 20. Then came to him, came to Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's children, with her sons, worshiping him. She comes worshiping Christ and desired a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? What would you want from me? And she saith unto him, and she asked Jesus this, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy kingdom. Because there's no one like her boys. You know, my, I, I remember in high school, my grandmother. She's as sweet as honey. I mean, she would melt in the rain. But if you crossed her grandchildren, she would rip your eyes out. You know, she was. You know, and I could, I could, I could play the worst game of my life, and after, after the game, and and she would say that was, you were so amazing. I'm like, I know she, she must be blind or something. But thank you, Grandma. You know, she's in heaven today, so she just, doesn't hear me probably, but. Uh, she was so awesome, you know, and I'll never forget, I'd be out there playing football. You know, I'm the captain of the team, you know, and I'd be running the ball or going out for pass, doing different things, and, you know, my dad would be filming the game, and I would hear both my mother and grandmother yelling, get off of my joshi I'm like, don't, you don't say that. <laughs> they used to say, if you ever, if you ever get hurt on the field, we're coming out there. I'd, I'd get up with a broken leg. I'm like, you stay up there, you know, you don't do that to a guy, you just... Don't call me Joshy. You know? So, I don't need no other guys teasing me today about that either. My grandma lights you up too. <laughs> so you have you have you have Salome. She's saying, you know, Jesus, you know, my boys are the best. <laughs> you know, can they sit on your right hand? But but you know, it's a request that also reflected she believed Jesus was the Messiah, right? Nobody else is asking this. And you know, I think there is something to say that she was more concerned about her kids being great for God than being great as fishermen. Right? There's something to be said for that. There's something to be said when a mother is more concerned about her kids being great spiritually than being great in the world's eyes. So I think there's a lot of commendable reality to this. And and what's interesting is Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He just responds. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. (laughs) Are you able to drink the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, now Jesus is not speaking of water baptism here. He's speaking of being... The word baptism carries the idea, uh, theologically, of being identified with something. So, when you get baptized, you're identifying. And so... Uh, when, when Megan gets baptized today, she's identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ. That she's in committed relationship with Jesus and she's no longer available to the world, right? So that's, it's an identification. And, and he's, he's saying, can you, be, can you die the death that I'll die? Can you, can, you, can you be baptized with the... And that's what he's referring to is later in their life that happens. And, uh, and, and they respond, um, uh, yes, we can. Uh, yeah, 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 we can do that. And, uh, and he said unto them, uh, Ye shall drink indeed uh, of the cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Uh, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom the Father uh, is prepared of my Father. You know, the Father had prepared this before the foundation of the world, in other words. Uh, but this, this request uh, from Salome uh, was probably prompted by James and John. You know, hey, Mom, why don't you? you go ask this you know and uh you know the disciples were always arguing over who was the greatest this prompted the other disciples to get very angry when they heard this they were angry with James and John they weren't angry because of so much the request they were just angry because they didn't ask it first (laughs) and so this reveals that these were young ambitious men I mean they they were they were driven guys uh, later in Mark fifteen forty, she was one of the few women who were at the cross of Christ standing. Uh, she was watching from a distance, but she was there at the cross. Uh, you know, only one of the 12 disciples were found at the cross, uh, but she was there. She was also with a group of women who went to anoint the body of Jesus Christ on resurrection morning. And when she got to the tomb, the angel said, he's not here for he's risen. Go tell the disciples that he's risen. And she's one of the women who went back to tell them. Uh, So they grew up in a very devout family, a a spiritual home. Uh, They were also part of the inner circle of disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So there were 12 disciples, uh, 12 who became apostles, but uh, there were three groupings of that, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago. There was a tier one, tier two, and a tier three. And so Peter, Andrew, James, and John were in that tier one group. And in that tier one group, there were three that were the closest to Jesus, which was Peter, James, and John. And in, in the Bible it doesn't say why, but Jesus pulled these three closer to him in situations than he did the others. And he spent more time with them than he did any of the others. When Jesus raised Jairus' 12-year-old daughter back to life, Mark five thirty seven says, and he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, uh, at the transfiguration when Jesus transfigured before them on the holy mountain. Mark nine verse two says that he brought only Peter, James, and John. And then when he went into the garden to pray, uh, they all were to pray, but he pulled aside specifically, according to Mark 14, 32, and 3, Peter, James, and John, to go further with him in that garden to pray aside. And so they had witnessed powerful events. And God, you, you need to understand this. God calls people to different works, and he can do different things with different people. So these two brothers were hardworking fishermen. They grew up in a devout home. They were serious about their faith, perhaps too ambitious at times, and they were called in the inner circle of Jesus's disciples. Now, why were they called the sons of thunder? Well, according to Mark 3.16, it says, uh, listing the disciples, it says, "In Simon, he's surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Now the word Boanerges is of Aramaic origin and comes from two words, ben meaning son of or children, and regez meaning violent rage or anger. And it denotes a fiery, uh, destructive zeal uh, like something that a thunderstorm would be uh, likened unto. Something in these two men was so apparent and so strong that he identified them with their fiery zeal. Turn with me to Luke 9, and this is where I believe it comes from. Luke chapter number 9. This time Jesus is heading to Jerusalem at the Passover. This was the last week of his life. He's going up to Galilee, ministering. He's needing to travel through Samaria to go down into Jerusalem. So you just need to understand geographically, Judea was south, Israel, Samaria was in the middle, Galilee was to the north. He ministered up around Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee was. He would have to travel down through Samaria to get to Jerusalem and the region called Judea. And so... Luke 9.51 tells us what happened. is He sends a couple of his disciples before him to prepare a place where they could stay. This is like call-ahead seating before they had cell phones. Verse 51, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the disciples he sends ahead run into a problem. Jews and Samaritans despised one another. Racism was thick among them. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. There was also a religious difference that caused them to have strife. As a result, the Samaritans did not like Jews to stay in Samaria if they were heading to Jerusalem. And so Luke 9.53 says, they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So the innkeeper must have asked, where are you guys heading? They knew the Passover was at hand. When they said, we're going to Jerusalem for the Passover, he says, well, you're not staying here. So they leave. Notice which of the disciples respond to this and how they respond. Luke 9.54. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, we need to really pray for these guys because obviously they don't understand who you are. Is that what they said? Lord, we need to, you know, these these are not our enemies, they are the mission field. Is that what they say? No, they said, said, Lord, uh, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Well, that's a great missionary heart, isn't it? (laughs) Lord, just burn them all up, destroy them. I mean, what grace? This isn't simple fire and brimstone preaching. This is, Lord, send literal fire and brimstone to destroy them. (laughs) This is the inner three. These are the closest ones. People today think preaching's hard. Y'all with me? I mean, you mentioned the word hell. There's preachers today that won't even mention the word hell Ever in their pulpit. <laughs> now I'm not condoning fire and brimstone coming down from heaven. But I am condoning preaching the full counsel of God. Amen. So James and John are referring to 1 Kings 18. Let me just give you a quick background of this story. Many of you are familiar with it. But in this day in 1 Kings 18. God had sent a three year drought upon the nation of Israel because of their pagan idolatry that had taken over the nation. They had left following the true God to follow false gods. And Elijah faced off with 400 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtera. In total, there were 850 prophets of these pagan false gods. And and because of the sin of the nation, God had sent that drought, and Elijah comes and offers a challenge to King Ahab and to these prophets. 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They were indecisive. They did not make a decision. So Elijah challenges these 850 prophets of pagan gods to attest to find out who served the true God. He said, let's build altars. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. Uh, you bring a bull like for an offering, I will as well. And I'll let you go first. And whoever's God will send down fire and consume the offering. That is the true God. They all agreed. And the 850 prophets went first. They began to cry out to their gods. They prayed. They danced. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 18.27 that Elijah gave them some encouragement. It says, And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them. I mean, church is almost to an end for them, guys. It's like it's noon, you know. Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he is in a journey. Or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. Verse 28.9 said, They cried louder. They took... Knives and, and, and sharp objects they begin to cut themselves and to bleed and, 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 and to do these kind of demonic acts. Doesn't that show you that one of the things that demonic activity reveals itself in cutting ourselves? And Elijah then has the people prepare an altar as they could not call down fire from heaven. And he says, uh, I want you to take 12 large Barrels of water and pour on the offering. So he pours on it, and they had dug a trench around uh, Elijah's offering, until water filled up the trenches, and it's running down. And then 1 Kings 18 gives us the story in verse 36. It says, "...and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice..." that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that the people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, what do you do when you see all that happen? It says, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, "The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God." Yeah, because every knee's going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Is that right? Everybody's going to. We bow now, gladly, right? We bow now because we, we, we confess Christ as Lord. In America today, Jesus is blasphemed, but at Lighthouse, we will glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he died, was buried, and rose again. You believe that this morning? We, we confess that. I, I don't need Christ to send down fire from heaven, his, his resurrection is enough. And so Elijah was a hero. And, and, and after this, God sent an abundance of rain on the land. And, and as one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, he was obviously a hero to James and John. They wanted fire to come down, not to consume some offering, but they're like, let's, you know, let, let's let this fire consume the whole city of Samaria. I mean, th- this, is, this, is, uh, this is zeal without love, isn't it? So how does Christ respond to them in verse 55? But he turned and rebuked them. Luke 9.55, and said, You know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went to another village. You know what happened? Samaria missed Jesus. Jesus rebuked, though, in these two, their spirit toward the Samaritans. They had a great zeal for Christ. But you need to understand, a great zeal for Christ without love is lacking. Some people miss that. You can have a great zeal for the Word of God, a great zeal for truth, a great zeal for Christ, but if it's not seasoned with love, it is not what it needs to be. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 tell us that? Doesn't it say in First Corinthians 13, 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, the word charity just means love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith so that I can remove mountains, and if I don't have charity or love, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. You could be the greatest in every other area, but if you don't have that seasoned with love, then you become nothing. I find it interesting later that John would become a workman alongside of Peter and he goes back to the cities of Samaria in Acts 8.25 and preaches the gospel and those cities get saved, amen? So he did become a disciple of love. But it is undoubtedly from this incident that Christ named them the sons of Boanerges. Their fervent, zealous anger could rightly be called thunderous. It could be sure this wasn't the only struggle they had to have grace and patience. These guys were zealous men. Friend, as we look at a world today that rejects Christ and His truth, His teachings and His people, we must be careful that in the zeal for God's truth, we don't make the mission field the enemies. Does that make sense? Why just can't stand those people? You mean you can't stand those people? Jesus Christ died on the cross that they might be saved and and you can't stand those people? Because they're what, a, a political difference? or because they have some different social thing, or they have some different preference, uh, we need to see them as a soul that needs salvation. Amen? How are we ever going to reach people if we, 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 we condemn them as enemies? We, we begin to be those who have a zeal without love, and we would be rebuked by our Lord for such. Now, it is important to understand that in the Old Testament, God's judgmental nations only came after He graciously sent them the truth and offered them mercy. Second Chronicles 36.15 says it like this, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers rising up betimes or often and sending because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised His word, misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people. And read the rest with me, till there was no remedy. There was no cure. This was stage four, malignant rejection of God. And the only thing left is judgment. We're seeing that happening to America, aren't we? But you need to understand this. Noah and his sons preached 120 years before the flood came. God said, if I could find 10 righteous people inside of Gomorrah, I'll spare those two cities. He graciously sent Jonah to the most evil, wicked city of Nineveh and spared them. The last week of our Lord's life that he wept over the city of Jerusalem that would reject him. And even from the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness. We must remember the words of Psalms 103, verse 8, that the the Bible says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow in anger and plenteous in mercy. You know, zeal is a good thing when it's toward the right thing and tempered with love. Jesus reflects some zeal in his life in John 2, right? I mean, when he went into the Father's house and he saw them uh, making merchandise of the people, using worship as a way to uh, make those priests and, and, and religious leaders rich, the Bible tells us he went and flipped over their tables and made a cord of whips and ran them out. Psalm 69 verse 9, Jesus fulfilled this when it says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. There's something about when, when God's people hear God being so defamed that they just can't stand it anymore. And he says, the reproaches of them that reproached you are fallen on me. In other words, because I'm so identified with Christ, when he is assaulted, I feel it. And Christ's zeal drove them out. There's a time to be angry, isn't there? I mean, there should be some things, when you look across America, that should anger you. Do you know people who they give sex change drugs to? Studies have come out this year that showed that they're 50 times more likely to commit suicide. A study was done that showed they're 50 times more likely. And they think they're saving their lives. They're a bunch of lying perverts that are doing this to these kids. This is the most wicked thing that has ever, potentially ever happened outside of abortion. This is one of the most wicked things we have ever seen on America's landscape. We have a president that's defending and pushing it. It is, it is, it is, And it's destroying these young people's lives. What happens when you're 12 year old and you transition from a boy to a girl? And they they give to you what they give they, they, they give to you ter, sterilization drugs that they give to uh, pedophiles. And They're giving them to little children now, to young kids. Is this insane? I, and uh, people say, well, you know, you might offend somebody that comes to lighthouse. You say that. I don't care. I don't mean that in a... I, I don't care. I'll stand on that truth all day long. You, you know, God forbid that Lighthouse will be filled up with a bunch of people that would approve of that. Right? Y'all with me? Because <laughs> I can tell you, you can't, you can't line up with this if you approve of that. You're an enemy of this. Uh, let's just go on. I, I don't think I need to persuade... So let's look at James. Let's look at James for just a little bit, and then I want to close out by looking at John specifically. So those are just some things about these guys, uh, the sons of thunder. Now, now, James, I would call him the zealous martyr, the zealous martyr. I mean, this this guy was a flaming light for God. You need to know that this James is not the same James who wrote the book of James. That James is the half-brother of Jesus. So, this, the half brother of Jesus, was not an apostle. He was a follower of Christ after Jesus rose from the dead, but this James never authored any books. This James is the brother of John, and John did author the Gospel of John, first, second, third John, and the book of Revelation. So, this is the older brother of that John. James never appears in Scripture apart from his brother John, they were very closely linked. He was a man of passion and zeal. And uh, not only is that seen in Luke 9, but it's also seen in Acts chapter 12. You know, the the church exploded with growth, souls were being saved, lives being changed. And then in Acts 12, King Herod begins persecuting the church. And notice what he does when he persecutes the church. This is not the same Herod that, that, that Herod was like a title, like Caesar. So this is the great grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died. Herod the Great was the one who tried to kill baby Jesus, and he died uh, just shortly after, like four A.D. So, this this uh, in Acts chapter twelve, verse one, it says, "Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church." And notice who he kills first. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. With a sword means they beheaded them. That that's 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 one of the ways that they would refer to that. But he beheaded James. Same way, that's what they did to John the Baptist, wasn't it? And because he saw it pleased the Jews, notice who, who who he took next. He proceeded further to take Peter also. But then they prayed for Peter, and God released Peter. And um, it's kind of a neat story there. But so the first apostle to be martyred was James. I mean, this reflects. This guy must have made some waves, right? I mean, you would have thought they would have taken Peter first. But Peter's second in line. He's like, we got to do something with this James. Who's the first one that we should arrest? And they're like, get James. This fiery, zealous, wave-making mouth. I mean, this guy must have been loud and bold and courageous and unashamed. I mean, this shows the impact this guy had. Thunderous zeal. It seems that James created waves like John the Baptist did. John the Baptist was arrested because of his preaching. James followed suit. These guys were fearless. I mean, you see Peter wavering. James and John just never really did. They just were stuck to their guns. He was a burning, flaming light for God in Jerusalem. And Herod felt it and thought he must be put out. You know, zeal can have both positive and negative features. Zeal can be something that makes people insensitive. It can be too, You can be too direct. Sometimes people with zeal can speak before they think. They can sometimes make emotional decisions, be intolerant. As mentioned before, zeal without love turns into intolerance. But zeal should be something that is part of every Christian's life because zeal is this child of strong conviction to the truth. When you really believe something, zeal will be birthed from that. We do that with earthly items, don't we? We say, hey, man, if you, if you try this, you'll never, you'll never try anything again. Once you, once you try this, I mean, you'll never go back. You talk to my wife, she's like those Ufos shoes. You, you, you wear a pair of Brooks, you're good, you know. For me, it's like 42-year-old. I'm like Skechers, baby. <laughs> think I'm teasing. Those things are like walking on air. Who knows what I'm talking about? Is there any other older guy? Yeah, okay, thank you. You know. Air fryer. Anybody feel like that about an air fryer? Is that a fantastic invention? Yes, that's a fantastic invention. Yeah. You mean this is done in like five minutes? Yeah, just throw it in there. Fantastic. Yeah, I can cook with this thing. My pillow. I used to think, ah, my pillow. Finally got one. I was like, ah, it's not too bad. I couldn't live without it now. I'm like, this thing is fantastic. You know. But we find something and we're like, you know, you got to try this. This is the best. You know, and you get you get you know, like G2 pens, you know, just fantastic things. You know, when James came to know Jesus Christ, something of much more significance than any physical thing, he became so absolutely convinced that he found the best truth you could ever have. He couldn't stop sharing it. He could not stop sharing that. He was passionately proclaiming Christ. And I think it's important to see that the Two of the first four disciples Jesus calls were men of zeal and men of great passion, two sons of thunder. Christian, what does the zeal in your life say about your conviction for the truth? What does your zeal reflect about your conviction of the truth? Zeal can be defined as passion, fervor, enthusiasm. You know the opposite of zeal is indifference, apathy, and lukewarmness. And Revelation 3 tells us that God spewed them out of His mouth who were lukewarm. I fear many Christians can be a smoldering ember instead of a burning flame. Does your life show a zeal for the truth of God? You know, we see a world that's zealous for their lives, aren't they? They think what they believe is the truth and they speak it boldly. If there's anyone that believes what what, uh, they have is the truth, it should be the believer. And so history records that James was... Killed approximately 44 AD, according to Clemens Alexandrinus, who was a prominent early writer. He says when James was led to his execution, he had such courage. And it was so impressed upon his captors that one of the men who held him captive fell before James on his knees asking James to forgive him. History says James lifted the man up, embraced him, and said, Peace, my son, peace be to you, and pardon for your faults. They said the soldier is said to be so moved by his compassion, he publicly confessed Christ and was beheaded alongside of James. What's interesting, this kind of thing happened over and over and over among early believers. Even at the the cross of Christ, it was was the... uh, Uh, One of the leading Roman, the centurion there, who said this must have been the Son of God in history, says that man went on to be a preacher, I believe, in uh, um, Caesarea Philippi. So God can do that. And the last thing we'll look at is the Apostle John, a man of love for the truth. So we see James was a zealous martyr, but John was a man of love and a man of truth. The name John means a gracious giver. He authored five books of the New Testament. He believed to be uh, one of the first two who followed Jesus. If you remember back in John chapter number one, when, when John the Baptist was baptizing and it says, and there were two of his disciples who stood next to him as he walked in John one 35, it says again, the next day, John stood and two of his disciples looking upon Jesus as he walked. He said, behold, the lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. The new Testament identifies one as being Andrew. We talked about that last week, but, uh, most all uh, theologians believe the other was John, and so John was just like Andrew, who had journeyed a hundred miles south from the Sea of Galilee. He worked; would have been maybe even working alongside of uh, Peter and Andrew on the Sea of Galilee. But they went a hundred miles on foot to go down there to be where John the Baptist was. These men were serious about their faith. He also didn't have a delayed faith. We saw that in Andrew. You know, they immediately followed Jesus. I think so often that Christians lose out on what God could do in their life because they have a delayed faith. They know that God's calling them to do something, but they just won't do it. Maybe next week I'll get to that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give that sin up some point. Maybe I'll, I'll begin to get serious with God. Maybe I'll, I'll get saved next week, or maybe I'll get baptized later. No, 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 you won't. You'll keep putting it off. They immediately follow Christ. They were men of, of surrender. What do you need to surrender to God today? What do you need to say, God, I need to get serious with you about this? And you know, sometimes we think about John as the apostle of love, who he was believed to be the youngest of all 12 disciples, who leaned against Jesus in the upper room. We think, you know, in America, we we have some kind of sentimentality view of of his love and affection toward Christ. But you need to understand, John was a son of thunder. John was a zealous man for the truth. He was, he was one who sought to call down fire from heaven. You know, in, in the Gospels, he's only mentioned one time by himself, and it's in Luke nine forty nine. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. We forbade him because he followed not with us. He was also an isolationist. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he, he that is not against us is for us. And, and so you see that, that John kind of had a narrow view early on that Jesus began to expand. John was a man who was zealous for the truth. When you study the writings of John, you see how passionate he was for the truth. The word believe is used 98 times in the Gospel of John and 29 times in the other three Gospels combined. He wanted people to believe the truth. He wrote with an evangelistic zeal. John wrote with an emphasis of the deity of Christ. When you study the four Gospel accounts, they're like a panorama of Jesus. Matthew wrote about Jesus as being king of the Jews. Mark wrote to a Gentile audience and wrote about Jesus being a a servant of man. Over here, Luke, who was a doctor and a physician, wrote about Jesus as being the son of man. And John comes along and gives us the view of Jesus being the son of God. Matthew begins the genealogy of Jesus with David, who's the king of Israel, and writes about the kingly lineage that Jesus had as being king of the Jews. Mark doesn't give a genealogy because servants didn't have one of notoriety, so he doesn't give a genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. Luke, since he wrote about Jesus being the Son of Man and the perfect man, took the genealogy all the way back to Adam. But then where did John start his genealogy from? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He starts with the divine eternality of Christ. He elevates the deity of Christ. Twice Jesus is called God in the book of John. Ten times He's called the only begotten of the Father. You know, in Exodus 3, God reveals Himself as the great I Am to Moses. Over and over and over. You need to understand that I am of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus came to the woman at the well and said, I am the Messiah. In John 6, He said, I am the bread of life. In John 8, He said, I am from above. John 9, He said, I am the light of the world. In John 10, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and life. In John chapter 15, I am the true vine. Over and over and over, he declared himself to be the I Am. John was zealous to present Christ's deity. He was unashamed of the truth, but he had a great balance of love and truth. He spoke about the love of God so much, he declared that God is love in 1 John 4.8. He defined God's love for Christ in John 3.35. He taught that God loves his disciples in John 16.27. The Father loveth you because you've loved me. He teaches that God loved the world in John 3, 16. He said, if you want to love God, the way that you express that is in obedience to God. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keeps them, he that is, he it is that loveth me. I had a lady one time who said, it's just all about love. You always talk about the Bible, talk about truth, but it's just about love. God's all about love. And I said, yeah. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You want to define love based on your terms. God bases it on His terms, right? And, and, And we need to understand what love is. Love is the truth. And so love is not an adjective. It is a verb. Love is action. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John also taught we are to love one another as Christ loved us. So also I would like to say this, that John had a very special relationship to Christ. Um, In John 19, the Bible talks about where there was, what what, what, what amazes me, I spent years preaching through the Gospel of John, and at the very end of it, you have Jesus on a cross, and standing next to Him, near the cross, were a group of women who seemed to have more courage than the apostles, clearly, and then you had only one apostle standing there. And from the cross, it says in John 19, 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. And here Jesus is dying on the cross. And you know, the only people going to be standing next to Jesus are going to be those that are committed, right? I mean, if you're not committed, you're not going to be standing near the cross because that was a place, that was dangerous. That, That was dangerous. And do you think his mother was having a hard time standing before the cross, watching her son being crucified. I can tell you this much. Any, any mother in this room would die for their children. they love their children. You would, give, you, would, you would rather die on a cross than your child, right? I mean, this was the most painful thing. Th- this is what Simeon referred to when he says, Yea, and a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. This was the piercing. And his mother was not old at the time. She would have been probably around 50 years of age. She would have had Jesus when she was still a teenager. But that day, Mary couldn't die for Jesus because she needed a Savior. And on the cross, in John 19, 26, Jesus says this, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Isn't that something? You know, to Peter, Jesus said, feed my sheep. But to John, he says, I want you to take care of my mom. There was a relationship that John had with Jesus that was so tender that he left the care of his mother to John. History records that John never left the city of Jerusalem until Mary passed away. He took care of Mary all throughout his life. I'm sure Mary needed such grace and love and care. According to the Fox's Book of Martyrs, John faced martyrdom later in life. He was thrown into a pot of boiling oil. He survived that during a wave of persecution, and they exiled him to a barren isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And it was there in Asia Minor that he wrote the book of Revelation. And he, had died, he died approximately 98 AD, the only, the only apostle to have died a peaceful death. History says that those knew him well told of how his lips constantly echoed, My little children, see that you love one another. Well, we could learn to love one another from John, couldn't we? How important that is. And so as I close, the two sons of thunder were men of great zeal, great passion for God. They were in the inner circle so mightily used by God. I pray that we can carry a great zeal for truth, but in doing so that we also harness that with great love. We need to temper our zeal with love. James, the older brother, then became the first martyr. He became the first apostle to die, and John became the last apostle to die. In ancient Rome, they had a coin, and there was an ox on it. And the ox was facing both an altar and a plow, and the inscription on the coin read, Ready for either. Ready for either. And that's how we need to be. James went to the altar, and John went to a life of service whatever God's calling you to do, friend, today, you need to obey that. Where is your zeal today? It's okay to be zealous for things that you may believe in, in the physical sense. But may that be a very small portion of your zeal. Friend, today, let your zeal be for this. Let your zeal be for this. When people come in contact with you, they should contact this. When they rub shoulders with you, they should rub shoulders with this. How could I fill my heart up with this and it not flow out with some fire? Amen.